Other People with Brad Listy is a weekly podcast featuring in-depth interviews with today's leading authors, poets, and screenwriters. Electric Literature calls it one of the best podcasts on the web, and BuzzFeed calls it the perfect way to get the stories behind your stories. There are now more than 400 episodes available, including one featuring me. And counting. Really? Yeah. The, the, I talked to him a couple of years ago when I was oh. promoting one of my novels. Brad, uh, Brad, Listy, Brad Listy is a great resource, right? He's the, the Nervous Breakdown has been a great literary podcast for almost a decade. No, now. he's fantastic. He gets the best people and he, he asks terrific questions. Hear conversations with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Leslie Jameson, Hanya Yanagihara, Jonathan Lethem, Sheila Hetty, Eileen Miles, and many more. Other People with Brad Listy has its own official app available for free at your local app store. The show is also available for free at iTunes and Stitcher and on the web at otherpeople.com. That's otherppl.com. It's a cool podcast. Check it out. Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, author Deanne Stillman is here on the 15th anniversary of the publication of her book, 29 Palms, A True Story of Murder, Marines, and the Mojave. We discussed the new HBO documentary about Nora Ephron, directed by her son Jacob Bernstein. It's called Everything is Copy. And the wandering minstrel Tom Lutz is back from the Philippines, Guam, and Points West. Joining me, it's no coincidence, is the wandering minstrel himself, the founding editor of LARB, Tom Lutz. Welcome back. Thanks, Seth. Glad to be home. And... Editor without portfolio. She used to be the fiction editor, but now there's no portfolio <laughs> at all. Lori Weiner, what's going on with you and LARB? I'm an editor at large. Editor at large. Yes, like, not, a, like a criminal, you know, at large. And it's not because I'm large, although, you know, arguably I am. I, I like the sound of uh, without portfolio, but we will refer to you as editor at large. So uh, how has the reentry of uh, Tom Lutz been? That's a very personal question. Um, I think it's been it's been very smooth. <laughs> and we'll we'll get the real answer during the break. Stick around. We're going to do the show now. Nora Ephron burst onto the literary scene in the 1960s with a series of pithy and acidic personal essays in Esquire magazine. She wrote the novel Heartburn, which became a Mike Nichols movie starring Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. She wrote the screenplay for such films as Silkwood and When Harry Met Sally and directed hits like Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. She also wrote, this is long, but she did a ton of stuff. She also wrote several best-selling essay collections and was a role model for several generations of women. Lena Dunham, I'm looking at you. She died four years ago. Now there's a new HBO documentary directed by her son, Jacob Bernstein. It's called Everything is Copy. Lori, what did you think of that 
doc. I had a personal interest in it because when I was starting out as a journalist, well, when I was still in college in the 70s, when she was in the late 70s, when she was publishing these essays in her book in Scribble Scribble, Crazy Salad, these were the the compilations of her journalism. I loved her. I thought she was the person I wanted to be. She was so smart, so acerbic, so observant. Her confidence was unmatched. She was amazing. And then uh, as the years went on and she went into filmmaking, um, I just didn't recognize the person that I had loved. I was like, does she really believe this female wish fulfillment bullshit that she's putting on the screen? I just was very disappointed. But then seeing the documentary and seeing all of it all put together, you know, I felt the whole range of her personality, which was pretty big. So it was, it was a big, it was a good film? Itself, I think it was a good film. Yeah, her son made it. And he just kind of went and talked to everybody who knew her as well as her sisters and, you know, who knew her really well and, and told the story of her parents and how their failure in Hollywood. Um, failure, failure being relative. They right. Were, they, had, they were, we say they were a screenwriting team. Right. They got a bunch of movies made. Right. And, uh, and then they didn't. And then they became alcoholics. And uh, her mother died of cirrhosis of the liver, and her father kind of went nuts. That and is it, quite an accomplishment, by the way, for a Jew to, de- to die know. from cirrhosis of the liver. I think she's the, the only one who ever has. So her, the specter of her parents' disintegration kind of fueled her ambition in Hollywood, and she was extremely ambitious and really good at getting what she wanted. So regarding her ambition, and she was she was an incredibly ambitious woman and made no bones about it, and the movie explores that. The movie, we should say, is given that it was directed by her son, was quite even-handed. For, for all of her ambition, where do you put her in the pantheon, Tom? Where would you rate her as a, as a writer, as a director? Uh, she's not She's not in, the, in a pantheon, I don't think. I mean, am I wrong? She's a, a middle-brow, um, middle-achieving writer um and did some great stuff and what was what was the great stuff well i think that heartburn's a great movie i like i like that movie i think heartburn is classic in terms of uh, showing the betrayed woman I, I i there are very few movies that do that better than that did i think it was amazing and of course jack nicholson is you know perfectly cast as the cheating husband carl bernstein although that's not what she calls him but i, I think she was better than middling the thing that always haunted me was you know, she seemed very happy with the Hollywood uh, success. And I just always wondered, like, did it eat at her at all that it was so dopey? Do you think she knew that? Because I'm, I'm agreeing I did, with you. you. Know, I think I found the films dopey as well. I thought when Harry Met Sally was was recycled Woody Allen. And I thought uh, Sleepless in Seattle was just schmoopy, ridiculous. Schmoopy. Wish yeah, fulfillment. Yes. It's a schmoopy movie. It was very schmoopy. And, and I, I was not under her sway at, at any point, although I agree with you that Heartburn was, was a good movie, which we should say Mike Nichols directed. Yes. Well, I mean, so who was she, you know? I mean, did she change? Did she lose that acerbic edge and, and become someone else? I don't think so. Um, David Remnick says a really smart thing in the documentary. What's the documentary called, by the way? Everything is copy, which is what her mother would say to her when anything bad happened, that you right. can use this in your work, right? which is kind of a good way to proceed through life. Right. Well, uh, the commentators in this documentary are a lot of really smart people, including Bob Gottlieb, who was the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker, who and Knopf. Uh, who she went and lived with when Carl Bernstein 
uh, when she found out that he was cheating on her. It was at his house that she wrote Heartburn. And also David Remnick and Leah Dunham and lots of people. But um, Remnick says, you know, the thing that was so great about her is that she wasn't a genius. So she was approachable. Like, she wasn't that different from you and me. You know, she wasn't in some other stratum. And yet she was so productive and so talented and so delightful. All right. So let me just jump in there for a second because this is – I probably shouldn't say this and maybe we'll cut this out. But because it's just personal. I had lunch with her trying to get money for Los Angeles Review of Books for her. And one of the things I did was I brought a stack of Lori's books with me to have her sign them. You know, hardcovers bought when they came out. And maybe five books. And she looked at them like, why only half of the books were there? That's what it, that's what it looked like to me. And there, and there are certain authors that are that way, that you, you, you bring them nine of their ten books to sign and they want to know why the tenth one isn't there. And uh, there was something about her, that, uh, a brittle, rich New Yorker who was very full of her own importance and who wasn't exactly sure why she was wasting time with somebody like me and and uh, and was quick to dismiss me when uh, at, the, at the first sign that, that I was dismissible. I, I, f- I found her kind of uh, grotesque. She desperately wanted success. She made no bones about that from the very beginning of her career. It's not an attractive quality. But what I will say about her is that she sustained a very long career because from the time she was My in God. her 20s, writing these terrific Esquire pieces to toward the end of her life when she wrote a couple of uh, collections of best-selling essays. Uh, I feel bad about my neck and I remember nothing. And the fact that her appeal was... Two, two great titles, by the way. Two fantastic titles. And and that her appeal was transgenerational. And I think that will be her legacy, much more than uh, a filmic one. Yeah, I think, you know, nobody reads Dorothy Parker anymore. I, I mean, she was much more productive than Dorothy Parker, but she was a personality. And um, that's probably what she'll remain famous for. Yeah, and unlike Dorothy Parker, she worked hard. She worked a lot. She yes. she produced a lot. Um, so, and she and yeah. she kept evolving too, from mm-hmm. an essayist to a screenwriter to. And we haven't mentioned she wrote a play, a Broadway play, uh, that was called That's Lucky. That's really called, interesting. Called Lucky Guy. This was the that, last thing that she wrote, and Tom Hanks starred on it. A short short run on Broadway. It's called it's, Lucky Guy. We right, should say Lucky Guy, and it's about a journalist uh, at the New York Post named Mike McElroy. Is that Mike, Ma- Mike McGallery? Yeah, Mike McGallery. Anyway, the uh, it's called Lucky Guy because he didn't have. Um, <clears throat> an incredible amount of talent. He had, a, a, you know, enough talent, and then he had a very, very lucky life and career. And I think that's probably her saying that's mm. how she saw herself. I like Phil, her better. The film is called Everything is Copy. It's on HBO, and uh, we think it's worth checking out. Definitely. Give me what you alone can give A kiss to build I'm Seth Greenland, here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, here on the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 FM, KPFK. The author Wally Rudolph has been kind enough to come back from... uh, 
promoting his new novel, Mighty Mighty, to talk to us about a book he thinks we should be reading. Wally, welcome back to the LARB Radio Hour. Hello. Uh, I've been checking out a great novel by another Los Angeles-based writer named Scott O'Connor, which I'm sure you guys have heard of. I'm reading his last, his uh, latest book, Half World, and I can't recommend it enough. If you're a fan of fiction, if you're a fan of literary fiction and commercial fiction, Scott's doing some incredible work out there, and uh, every writer out there should be taking note. What's it about? Uh, it's about it's about everything. eighty pages. <laughs> <laughs> it's about um, the CIA. It's a it's about the CIA experiments in the sixties. Um, oh. That would limit it in it really limit it uh, in that sense. It's so much more. Scott is such a subtle um, writer, and when he puts a pen to the page, it's really magical. Some of the stuff he comes up with because it's he really catches you off guard. He's he's I, I'm just really enjoying reading his work. But it has some elements of thriller. Yes, definitely. It, right? I mean, he wa- he's walking that literary and commercial line better. I, you know, right there with anyone. You know, not to you know, um, just like Todd Goldberg. I mean, but I think that Scott's work is, yeah, it's, it's something else because it's, it's, I, I think you got to get a, about a, I'm about a halfway through it right now and putting a finger on it. It's, it's kind of hard because he has some moments that are just, just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stuff. All right, Scott O'Connor, we will check him out. Wally Rudolph, thanks for coming back. Thank you so much, guys. Deanne Stillman is a journalist and the author of several works of nonfiction, including 29 Palms, A True Story of Murder, Marines, and the Mojave. It is the 15th anniversary of its publication, and she's here to talk about it, among other things. Deanne, welcome to the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks a lot, Seth, Laurie, Tom. Hello. Nice to be here. Hi. Well, um, just to be perverse, I'm going to start by asking you about another book, a book you wrote after uh, 29 Palms, okay. but also about a murder in the desert called Desert Reckoning, which I really loved. Thank you. Um, as with all your books, it's about the strange people who gravitate to the desert. And while I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, writers always shine a spotlight on some aspect that we don't see, but you really go into hidden crevices of American culture that are even more layered and hidden than uh, what drives you to to do that, do you think? Well, it has a lot to do with my upbringing. I have a strange riches to rags story about my childhood. I grew up on the uh, mostly frozen shores of northeastern Ohio, and um, I was escaping at an early age into stories about the desert west because I, you know how you just know when you're born in the wrong place. I Mm -hmm. never really liked it there and Mm -hmm. I was always drawn to the west. But it became an escape hatch for me due to family turmoil as well. And I was reading a lot about it as a kid. And um, my father, who taught me to read, used to um, read all of his favorite writers to me out loud. And um, one of them was Edgar Allan Poe, and he loved the poem El Dorado. And, you know, it has that refrain, gaily bedight a gallant night hmm. in sunshine and in shadow, had traveled along singing a song in search of El Dorado. And I would get lost in that poem and was living inside of it. And um, that's where I would go into this landscape that it conjured up. 
uh, at that time when my parents were married, we lived in an upper middle class suburb of Cleveland and um, we meaning my mother and sister and father and I and, and my sister and I were very indulged and we had tailor made clothing and um, my mother had horses and taught us how to ride and uh, I had private French lessons and so on and just, you know, we really lived in in a dream. and Because um, private French lessons are much better than public French lessons, right? They probably, they probably well, yeah, are. They were, well, they were, yeah, because I had these amazing French, the fabulous Hulot sisters from Marseille. Uh-huh. And um, my mother used to take me to their house. And, um, you know, it was just fantastic. And they would, like, lay out this spread of French meal. And we would, the whole thing was in French. And, yeah, mm. it, was, it was a blast. So, well, so wait, we- so I'll t- t- have to finish my richest rag story. Sorry, one day all of this came, literally within a 24-hour period, it came to a total halls. My um, best friend, who we lived in, a ma- in literally in a mansion, and um, an old Tudor-style mansion, and, um, you know, with, like, I don't know, 24 rooms or something and mm. a fireplace in each uh, bedroom and marble hallways and so on. And so on. Anyways, this, one day my best friend from across the street called me and I was getting ready to go to school and um, we were eating breakfast and she said, how come there's a for sale sign on your front lawn? And I you know, said, what? And I ran out and looked and there was this for sale sign in front of, like right in front of my favorite dogwood tree. And, um, you know, it just crushed me. And I asked my mother what was going on. And she burst into tears and told me and my sister that my parents were getting divorced. And, I mean, it really happened that quickly. Hmm. Boom, a for, a for sale sign, you know, so dramatic. And we, my mother and sister and I moved literally to the wrong side of the tracks very quickly um, across the street from the uh, local racetrack. And my mother's most immediately marketable skill was horseback riding. She um, went over to the racetrack and got a job pretty quickly as an as an exercise boy, as they used to be called. And she was one of the first women in the country to ride professionally on the track. And that put well, me into... Oh, just sorry, a second. Go, yeah. Yeah. So your dad just kicked you all out without a dime kind of thing? Or what? How did well, I've, <laughs> I, yeah, I kind of... I hate to speak ill of the dead, although I, well, I mean, I've written a lot about, no, it's, I, it's all out there. I've written about, the, <laughs> yeah. well, yeah, he stayed on the right side of the tracks and remarried and, and you know, um, was kind of a, an erratic figure in our lives. And um, fortunately for me, he had taught me how to write because this became a, continued to be my escape hatch, writing and reading. And I really began cont- losing myself in a big way in all of this literature of the West and, you know, a fantasy world. And and the fact that I knew how to ride and my mother, and we were around horses and meeting all these oddballs at the track and so on, that kind of fueled my wanderlust. And I would imagine like being out west and, you know, running across red rock mesas with Crazy Horse and Calamity Jane and everything. But back to Lori's question about what about these people I write about? I had, because of where we you know, lived for like the next 10 years. I These were all like the misfits and outcasts of the world, all, you know, all hanging around the racetrack. And um, they became our new friends and our new world. And also the kids I was, you know, then like going to school with in a working class neighborhood. But I still had this foot in, my, you know, the other world because, you know, we, 
that was half of my family. Yet my mother and sister and I had become persona non grata to a lot of our relatives because we lived in the wrong place. Mm. So I knew what it felt like to suddenly like not have a voice. It was like, well, you you don't count anymore, as I said, within a 24-hour period. So the the worst thing that happened to you in your childhood was kind of the making of you as a writer. For sure. The worst and the best, because right. it was this terrible uh, rupture. Mm-hmm. But then knowing how to write and being taken seriously as a writer by my father, who was like as erratic and you know, crazy as he was, he was like my biggest fan and he loved my work and encouraged me and we would make up stories together and I would submit them to Mad Magazine and Mm. get these like not right for us (laughs) notes, which, you know, (laughs) how I got used to it. We don't don't publish desert murder stories (laughs) in Mad Magazine. (laughs) Right. But also I used to sign my name Dean Stillman because Mad was written by boys Mm. and I know that they Uh. were. You see, they didn't publish me because I was a girl. They knew, they could tell. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. We are talking to Deanne Stillman on the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK FM. Stick around. As I mentioned in the introduction, it's the 15th anniversary of the publication of 29 Palms. And briefly, for for our listeners, outline what the story is about. Okay. Okay. Uh, 29 Palms is a story of two girls who were sexually assaulted and killed by a Marine after the Gulf War in 29 Palms, California, which is um, home of the world's largest Marine base and also the portal into Joshua Tree National Park. And um, something I do in my book is I trace the uh, histories of the uh, families of each murder victim, each of the girls back for generations, in one case to the Donner Party and the other to a shack in the Philippines. And then I follow that trail back to 29 Palms and and explore how the military helped each of the girls' families escape their various circumstances. But yet there's this legacy of poverty and violence that follows each of the girls and their families all the way through. There's a new edition that was published recently with an introduction by the crime writer T. Jefferson Parker. And what is it about the book, do you think, that makes it continue to resonate? First of all, it's all about America's dispossessed. As I was saying earlier, you know, we have this dirty little secret class, which we're not supposed to talk about. These kids and families who live and work in military towns are persona non grata, you know, that that's a big part of what makes it still makes this story resonate. Um, Doesn't it have go- a race component as well? Am I remembering that correctly yeah, from when I read it? Perhaps you might. You know, there's a show on about uh, somebody you might have heard of called O.J. Simpson on <laughs> FX right now <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that a lot of people are watching and talking about. And Lori and I and Tom, Tom, were you here for that when we were talking about the OJ show? We're talking about how in 25 years so little has changed in terms of race relations in America despite uh, 
the ascendancy of, of Barack Obama to the presidency. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about the way race figures into your book and how that resonates as much now as it did 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, well, just first of all, a comment on OJ. As I, as I told my friends when that verdict came down, the, like the last time white people were so upset about a loss was when Ali beat Jerry Corey. <laughs> <laughs> A boxing okay, reference. Thank you. Yeah. thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Try the veal. <laughs> we'll, we'll, put the, we'll put the crickets in later. <laughs> we'll, do that, we'll do that in post. But it's a good point. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, um, there are a lot of parallels between my book and the OJ case. The Marine who was accused and uh, convicted of killing these two girls was a... Um, a star on the Marine basketball team, and in fact had been recruited evidently by the NBA before he joined joined the Marine Corps. So he was a popular athlete. He was a valuable asset to the Marine basketball team at 29 Palms. He idolized Patrick Ewing, whose number was 33 in the NBA. And one of the things that linked him to the killings of the two girls was that each of them had been stabbed 33 times, oh. weirdly enough. Ooh, exactly gosh. 33. Yeah, exactly 33 it's times. It's a, a Manson-like detail. There was his bloody palm print at the scene. There was a print of his Italian loafers uh, at the scene. I mean, there were many, many also parallels. OJ parallel. OJ, yeah. Another OJ parallel. Right. You reported this pretty immersively. You got to know a lot of the players yeah. quite well. What kind of effect did that have on you? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked about that. It, that's an important part of all of, all of, the, of my work, actually. It, it, it affected me in every way on a really profound level. Um, it took me 10 years to put this all together, so I developed close attachments with some of the people I was writing about. Debbie became a very good friend of mine en route, and um, you know I certainly wouldn't have been able to tell this story without her. Or some mother, of, mother of a victim. Mother of Man, Mandy Scott, and um, at some point I came to know more about um, what happened on the night of the murders than she did, and more some things that hadn't come out in court and didn't need to, and I wrestled a lot with, should I put all of this in my book or not because I knew it would be upsetting. And did you? I did. Mm-hmm. And it was very upsetting and caused a rift, you know, for a while. A while I was very I was on assignment. I had gotten an assignment from the New Yorker magazine to write about this story. So a lot of people knew what I was up to <laughs> because mm-hmm. of that. And I would, you know, I would tell them anyway, but that added to sort of the buzz around about around my work and, and um some people people in the town establishment of 29 palms were upset about what i was doing and the newspaper was running banner headline articles about me and uh it got pretty heated and nasty and why wouldn't they want you to report on a, the merger uh, it's bad for business. Military towns in remote, usually they're in a remote area. They depend on the military as a major source of income. The two sources, of primary sources of income in 29 Palms are the Marines and, and Joshua Tree, and scenery, Joshua Tree National Park. And the meth industry. Well, <laughs> true. And, and eggs over easy. Well, yes, that's, that's a part mm-hmm. of it. But, um so, you know, I could understand why the town establishment was upset. I, I get it. And what's the new project? 
Oh, it's called Blood Brothers, The Strange Friendship Between Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill. And that all comes out of Mustang, one of my books. Mm. And um, while I was writing that, I, and I write a little bit about this in Mustang, but I found out about... Mustang, by the, we should say, is about the wild Mustangs. Um, it's a saga of the wild horse in the American yeah, West. Exactly. But one of those yeah. long subtitles that mm-hmm. explains the title. Yeah. Um, these stories are all connected. I mean, they're all about the voiceless, whether it's people, animals, the land, in the end, our disconnect from the land and what's sacred. And, and that, to me, drives is, is something that drives all of these stories. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So while I was working on Mustang, um, I found out, I have chapters on Native Americans and the horse and Buffalo Bill and his horses. And um, I found out that at the assassin, when, when Sitting Bull was being assassinated, a horse that Buffalo Bill had given to him while he was in the Wild West show had been saddled and waiting for him outside his cabin during this ambush. And at the sound of the gunfire, the horse started dancing because he, that's what he had been trained to do in oh. Buffalo Bill's mm-hmm. show. And I, that was such a haunting image mm-hmm. to yeah, me. And I thought yeah. like, I, I wanted it to be my next book, so... That's so. That's how that ha- happened. And when uh, when do, when can we see that? Uh, next year. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, thank and, you. And Deanne, what's the full title of that book? Oh, that's called Blood Brothers: The Strange Friendship Between Sitting Bull and Buffalo Bill. All right, we'll be looking forward to it. Deanne Stillman, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, y'all. Really appreciate it. Thanks to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin, our crack production assistant, Ernesto Aureliano, czar of scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. You know what? You don't have to do www you these days. Nope. It's like I'm coming to you from 2008 or something. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week.